Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on Wednesday, August 18th, 2021. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our guest today is Dr. Judy Ho, who is a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist and a good friend of the program. Hi, Judy. Welcome back. Hi, Anna. How are you? Good to be with you again. Oh, good. It's so good to see you. Always good to see you. And today we have some cases that are very troubling that honestly, Judy, we really need your insight on. I I, I, I said to you right before we started recording, I think we need to burn candles. Right? You know, this is, this is a tough one, really tough one. So let's get right into it. So this week, an Atlanta woman who was walking her dog late at night in a city park She was attacked and killed, and so was the dog. They were both stabbed to death. Officials have warned the public to not go out alone at night, to always make sure that they're in groups of threes and fours, if at all possible. But first, a really disturbing case out of Southern California, where a surfing instructor is accused of taking his two very young children south of the border and then brutally murdering them both. I mean... And it's the way he killed them with a fishing spear gun. It is, and the reasons he told authority why he killed them that I think is just so hard for anyone to understand. So 40-year-old Matthew Coleman of Santa Barbara has been charged with murdering his two-year-old son, Kalo, and his 10-month-old daughter, Roxy. And the reason, say authorities, the father believed the children were possessed by demon DNA, that they were going to grow up to be monsters. That's what he allegedly told police. I mean, clearly, Judy, how, I mean, how can anyone look at two innocent, beautiful babies like this and in any way 
believe that there could be anything other than goodness in them. I know this is so disturbing in these two innocent children, God rest their souls. These cases of filicide where there's a deliberate act of parents killing their own children seems mysterious at first, but there are some risk factors and and essentially some patterns when we look into the psyche of these individuals. And what you had just alluded to already, Anna, is one of the main risk factors that we know of, which is a parent who might be suffering some kind of psychotic illness where they have certain belief systems that are delusional and not in keeping with reality. So in this case, his father thought that he was maybe doing the world some good, saving the world from the evil children that somehow he produced. Now, how he got that thought in his head, that's still up for debate. But oftentimes, if there's an untreated psychotic illness, Anna, people have these types of very paranoid delusions about the people around them. So that could be friends, family members, colleagues, and sometimes, sadly, their own children. According to the FBI, Judy, Matthew Coleman confessed to killing the babies by shooting them in the chest, each one of them with a spear gun. This happened on August 9th in a beach town in Mexico. Now, Matthew Coleman allegedly told police, quote, this is coming from the affidavit, that he was enlightened by QAnon and Illuminati conspiracy theories and was receiving visions and signs revealing that his wife possessed serpent DNA and that she had passed it on to their children and that he killed them to save the world. That is nothing short of insane. Absolutely. And you know what, Anna, during the pandemic, and I know everyone's sick of talking about the pandemic, but it's just true. This has been a type of stressor that has been on the community level. It's been chronic. It feels like it hasn't let up. And honestly, it has done some real numbers on people's mental health. And we've seen people delve into conspiracy theories more than ever, likely as a means to try to gain control over the situation. When there's so many unknowns, you want to believe that you have some answers. And sometimes that level of mental stress is going to essentially veer you down this path where eventually you might develop some belief systems that you never even knew could be possible if you knew this person prior. You know, I don't know this person's prior mental history, but it's possible that he was decent functioning, adequate functioning before a bunch of stressors came upon him. And he went down this route of conspiracy theories, which led to this incredibly horrible scenario. And, you know, the thing is, you can believe in all sorts of things, right? And have very strong reasons for believing what it is that you believe. And you can do this, Dr. Judy, without ever causing harm to another individual, right? But this crosses over beyond that. This is, you know, whether it's you think people are talking to you or you see a, a vision or a sign or something that ignites in you this this reason to do something so harmful, which you would ordinarily, under any circumstance, never, ever do. That this is the part, it's like, when does that disconnect happen? When does, you know, you're searching for answers at a difficult time turn into something so violent? It's a very good question, Anna. And I think that the disconnect comes from these people having a complete break with reality. And that is the underlying 
theme of psychotic illnesses that essentially you're no longer connected to reality. And when people try to convince you of what reality is, you think that they're part of the conspiracy. They're out to harm you too. And what's really disturbing about a number of these types of psychotic beliefs, Anna, is that there's this idea of a vigilante justice, right? So in this father, he's actually believing that maybe he's doing the world some good, that, okay, it's up to me. It's my responsibility to eradicate the world of evil. And the evil lives in my children as passed down by my wife. So it's really odd when you speak to these individuals, because on some level, they didn't think they did anything wrong. They thought they were doing something right. And it's so difficult to try to convince them of what they did. And you know what's really sad about this, Anna, is once he is treated for what is likely a mental condition and he comes to terms with what he did, that's going to be a whole lifetime of sorrow and post-traumatic stress disorder and all kinds of consequences that he's obviously going to have to contend with when he realizes what he did. But he says he knows that he killed the children because according to the FBI and all the authorities, even the Mexican authorities, he admitted he identified the children. He said, I did it. And this is why I did it. So you're saying that when something rearranges in his brain and he's able to comprehend because he knows he killed them. So you're saying when he comes to terms with with this horrible thing that he's done, that that's like the piece that's missing. Right. So he knows that he did it. And clearly this is not a person who, I mean, this is not like a career criminal here, right, Anna? You've seen many of those in your career too, interviewing them, looking into these stories. This is not a career criminal. This is somebody who, in my belief, is probably mentally ill. And of course, when the police apprehend him, he's like, yes, I did. I killed them because it wasn't even like he was necessarily trying to run away from this forever. I think what's missing right now is that he believes he killed the children for the greater good. When he is recovered from whatever psychotic delusions he's having right now, and he realizes that he killed innocent children that were not evil and that this was just essentially a figment of, sadly, his imagination that these children were evil, I think that's when he's going to contend with this idea of, oh, my gosh, I took the lives of my innocent babies And they did nothing wrong. And I think that's going to be the missing piece that's going to be connected when he recovers from whatever mental state he's in. Is it possible that someone can have these tendencies and people around them not know? This is why I ask, because when he took off, and we're going to get into the details of this, when he took off with the two children and the wife, the mother of the two children, called authorities and said, you know, we were supposed to go camping, but he's taken off in the camper with the two kids. And I'm really worried because he doesn't have the kids' safety seats in the van. And I don't know where he's gone. He's not responding to my text or my phone calls. But she says to the police, but I don't believe that the children are in danger. So my question to you is, is it possible that he was able to hide this from his wife or is she one of the people because she would be close to him that would have started picking up that he would have shared these theories with it's a good question and it depends so sometimes you notice these odd behaviors in your loved ones and or they even are telling you about their beliefs openly and you start to say you know something's not right they're seemingly believing in things that are really concerning and they're not acting like themselves so that's one subset of individuals who might suffer from these types of delusions unfortunately the other subset some of their delusions and the voices in their head perhaps that they're having 
visual or auditory hallucinations are saying, don't tell anybody about this. This is a secret. You're the only person who's supposed to know about this. And then in that case, the individual might become more secretive, which is a little harder to pick up on um, in your loved ones, particularly maybe if you're busy yourself, you're stressed yourself. And if they're delusion, if their hallucinations are telling them this is a secret and you cannot tell anybody or else this whole thing will be blown, then you wouldn't have a good way of finding this out. And I would also say that individuals who tend to have these beliefs, who harbor these beliefs, tend to be isolative in the first place. And so if that's kind of their character and they're not spending that much time talking to people, socializing with people, and again, Anna, the pandemic, it's changed the way that we really connect with others. There's less people, less eyes on the person because you're not getting together as regularly, perhaps with your loved ones and friends there's less people to pick up on what might be really odd behaviors that were escalating in this man for some time. And it's interesting because he blames his wife as being the source of the demon DNA. He told the authorities that it is the wife who passed on the demon seed to the children. So if what you're saying is correct, and he would have known that she was in his, in his twisted world, that she's the problem and the devil, that maybe he wouldn't have confided in her because she would be the enemy in his brain, right? That's a great point. I mean, again, if this is sort of the source of the evil, why would you go to the source of the evil and tell them about any of your plans if in your mind you believe you're going to be the hero here and save the world from evil, right? So you make a really good point. And again, this is all part of this whole constellation of beliefs That's actually essentially very well formed. There's like a real narrative here. And who knows how long he's been harboring it. This could be months that he was thinking about this and finally decided he had to do something about it because he couldn't live with himself if he didn't, if this evil was in the world and he's propagating it. I mean, God knows how long he's been festering these beliefs and how long they've been sort of turning around in his head without anybody saying, this makes no sense. You need help. I'm just stunned, Judy, at the ability during these these breaks, these psychotic breaks, or I don't know what the actual words are for this, how you can have levels of logic and clear thinking that is in some ways interspersed with the insanity of what's going on in the brain. Like they're both happening at the same time. I've worked with many individuals, Anna, who have psychotic symptoms and there's really a couple of different types, you know, the the kind that is very disorganized and you can't follow their train of thought and they're all over the place and can't think clearly. And then there's the type that is actually very coherent, especially around the theme of their psychotic delusion. So, you know, they may seem incoherent when talking about other things. They may seem like they're not following you when you're talking about a topic they're not interested in. But when you're talking about the theme of their delusion, everything is well thought out everything has a connection and they're able to be very logical, it seems, about their delusion. And they really believe in it. The idea of a delusion, the definition of a delusion is a fixed belief system. So usually these individuals are very rigid in their belief of these systems and the longer they're festering them in their mind, the more details they give it. And so it becomes this very coherent narrative that they've been rehearsing over and over in their heads for some time. And that's why it feels so coherent and they can kind of carry out what we would call somewhat logical ideas and actions. Like the logical thing is if you really truly think that these people are evil, 
that it's your job to take care of that evil, then the next logical step would be to remove that evil, right? So this person has some kind of logical thinking around this paranoia. And I have definitely seen this before. In fact, it's very common and confuses a lot of people. Oh, it's so disturbing and confusing because for the rest of us, this is so hard to process, so hard to process. So let's talk a little bit more about him, his life, and then the circumstances that led up to this. So Matthew Coleman had been a competitive surfer in his lifetime, you know, traveled the world surfing. And then he decided with his wife about 10 years ago to put together a surf camp, if you will, a business called Love Water, basically a surfing school. They provided private and group lessons. Plus they ran summer camps for kids, which, you know, here in California or anywhere that's a coastal community is a huge thing for children to go to surf camp. My son went to surf camp, you know, every, I mean, right. It's just a great thing to do, which of course now concerns me to no end thinking that this man was running this school for children, right? That scares the living daylights out of me. So earlier this month, On a Saturday, August 7th, Matthew Coleman's wife, Abby, called the Santa Barbara Police Department to report a possible parental abduction. She said that the whole family, as I said a little while ago, was planning to go camping and they have um, this special Mercedes kind of van, camper van that they had customized and they were ready to take off and he took off in this very distinctive vehicle. But she was so upset that he had not taken the child safety seats with them. So um, she said he wasn't answering her at all. But again, she wasn't worried that the children were in any danger. So based on what she said to the police, you know, that's where they take their cues. It is, I mean, they're not, they hadn't had an argument. There weren't marital issues as far as were they in the middle of a divorce? Was there an estrangement? There was, so there was none of this going on. So I would think from the police perspective, they're like, okay, it's a little weird, but is any of this illegal or dangerous? So that's, that's the initial thought as we look at this case. So the next day, so this would have been Sunday now, the next day, Abby calls the Santa Barbara police again because now her fear is escalating because he's not responding to any other family members either. So the officer goes back to the house and says to Abby, let's fill out a missing persons report. So the first call was not for the missing persons report. Let's fill this out. And he also said, "Um, let's use, if you can, the find my iPhone app to see if we can figure out where your husband is. So here are the cops trying to help her out. Let's see if we can at least locate where he is. Again, taking that kind of a a calm approach, like no one I think at this point seriously believed that these children were about to be murdered. No, no. And I think it's very telling that the wife, when she first reported it, was like, well, I'm sure they're fine. I'm not worried. I don't really need any assistance right now. I mean, she essentially called the police and essentially called off the dogs. Like, I'm just letting you know I'm a little concerned, but really I'm not that concerned, you know? So uh, it really seems like it's very out of character for this man, especially as you were talking about him, his mission in life, you know, helping children, being a teacher, being a coach, running a surf camp. I think there was a real love for children in his heart, at least before all of this happened. Oh, 
Absolutely. And certainly what's also interesting is obviously his love of the beach and the water. And I don't think it should be lost on anyone that he chose to murder the children at a beach resort. I mean, everything that he's done, his life has lived in a coastal community, and that is where these murders occurred. So they, the authorities help her figure out how to use the app to track her husband and that they see that earlier that afternoon. So remember, this is Sunday now that Matthew Coleman was in Baja, Mexico. So now they know they he's taken the children out of the country and he's in a town call, called Rosarito Beach. And that is a place where lots of people here in California just drive down for the day or the weekend, beach resorts, bars, beautiful beaches, you know. An, an easy commute or a, a weekend trip or even for the week. So, uh, and just so you know, this is about uh, 20 miles south of the border for those of you who are not aware. And it would be about a six hour drive from Santa Barbara. So totally a doable trip. So now that they know where his location is, they even tracked his location to an open air market at about 2.30 in the afternoon on that Sunday. So this is when the FBI gets involved because now we have a parent who has taken children out of the country without the permission of the other parent Mm -hmm. and something's going on. So the authorities are now on alert both in Mexico and at the border. This is when things start to get pieced together. Mm. So now it's Monday. He disappeared Saturday. Now it's Monday, August 9th. And Matthew Coleman is seen approaching the San Isidro port of entry. That's one of our border crossings here in California along the Mexican border. And they see that he's crossing back into California. So the wife sees this. She calls the Santa Barbara police. Santa Barbara police calls the border patrol, the FBI. Okay. So now everyone's on alert because Matthew is coming back into the United States. Matthew gets pulled over and the children are not in the vehicle. Not only are the children not in the vehicle as he's grabbing his registration and his papers, because you have to show these things at the border, the border agents noticed it looks like there's blood on his, um, DMV registration paperwork could have not been blood. But again, we've got two, the man crossed the border with two children, but he didn't come back with them. So something is not good. So by Monday, everyone's very concerned. FBI calls Mexican authorities and say, and they, and the FBI says, okay, now we have a, an even more serious situation. We have a father who is without his two small children. He has crossed back into the United States. We are fearful that the children are still perhaps in Mexico. Mm. And this is when everything just starts to come together in the worst way. So local police tell the FBI that literally a few hours earlier, they just discovered the bodies of two dead children Mm. matching the description of the two babies that he took down there. It's, It's horrendous. A farm worker was just going along and he found the two children in the bushes in a ditch right by Rosarito Beach. So the authorities took the photos of the dead children, sent them to the FBI, and the FBI matched those photos against the photos in the missing persons bulletin. It's as horrific as it could possibly be. And based on that cursory observation of the photos it appears to be the children remember we're dealing with a 10 month old and a two-year-old they're tiny 
These oh. are little babies. Oh. oh, my goodness. I know. These stories about children are always so hard, man. It's like, I mean, they're all hard, but when it's just like a baby, they oh, haven't even to experience life, you know? It's really awful to think about. Um, it is. And, and their final moments were very violent because yeah. according to their own father, this is what he told the FBI, and based on the cursory investigation of their bodies, it matches, they had large puncture wounds in their chest. He said he took one of those fishing spear guns and shot the two children in the chest, the baby, instantly, the two-year-old, this is the, the father oh. saying this, the two-year-old, he said, oh, Lord, was fighting. It wasn't the gun, the spear wasn't, I struggled to kill the child. Your own yeah. father. His whole oh. description of how he had to move the spear around in his toddler to kill him because he was still alive, apparently. Um, it's just disgusting to think about, you know? Yeah. It wasn't a quick and painless death for his son, that's for sure. No, no, not at all. I mean, how frightening this is. And then as he's going on, you know, of course, at this point, he's telling the authorities everything, his crazy theories about why he had to kill the children because of the DNA, the demon DNA that they had, that they had serpents, that they were going to grow up to be monsters. And then he also, you know, they, this is a minor thing, but to me, again, goes to the state of mind. Remember how the mother was so worried because there weren't any car safety seats? Remember the little one, the 10-month-old, Roxy? He said he put her in a box. He put her in a box in this camper, this Mercedes, and drove down with the baby in a box. Oh, my God. Right? Now, I realize you're all saying, look, someone clearly, he has no regard for life. So what's the difference of putting her in a box? But at 10 months old, you know, you're sitting up. You're, you know, you you can squirm around. It's, oh, it just must have been just so horrific. So, so horrific. So then he says, so that he drove down there. This is what he told the FBI. He said he pulled off the main highway in Rosarito and drove down a side street and pulled over. And that he killed the baby girl first, piercing her heart. <sighs> then he killed the second child, which means that the older child, who's two years old, is watching this, which to me adds horror to the last few minutes and seconds of this baby's life, without question. So then he said that he moved the children's bodies about 30 yards away to some brush, and all of this matched the location where the Mexican authorities found the dead babies and the farmer found the babies. Then he said, the father says he drove a few miles away and discarded the spear gun and the bloody clothes near a creek. Mexican authorities recovered the bloody clothes and what they believed to be the murder weapon, plus a baby's blanket in the area. So what he is allegedly telling the authorities is matching up with what the authorities are finding in real time. Okay. So then... Authorities are trying to figure out, okay, when were these babies killed and, and where did he go? So they managed to match up 
Matthew's version of events with hotel records and surveillance videos. So Matthew Coleman checked into Rosarito Hotel on Saturday night. So he leaves Saturday, Santa Barbara. By Saturday night, he's in Mexico. Clearly, the two children were still alive. Surveillance video shows him leaving the hotel at 3 a.m. on Monday. On Monday, the day that he's picked up at the border with the kids. He returns to the hotel at 6.30 in the morning and he doesn't have the children. So in the... It, so in the cover of night, it literally three between three and six in the morning is when this is taking place and he's doing this. Right. He returns without the kids. I guess he checks out. And that's when he, you know, he heads to the border and, and we've picked up the rest of the the rest of the case there. I mean, I just I don't know what to make of this. I, I I can't even imagine how the mother is trying to process this. And again, it sounds like the mother had no idea. I mean, this man, for all intents and purposes, was likely a loving father before he developed all of these paranoia. Because I think if the mother believed that the, her children were in danger, that he was going to kill the children... I have a feeling that she would have said that immediately, that that would have been the call. The call would have been, oh my God, they're in danger. He's, you know, he's been saying things that don't make any sense. Please, you have to find them. And that's not what's being reported here. Right. And it's, I know that this is also emerging, but I really wonder, you know, what the family members of this man thought, his friends, people who really knew him, you know, did they notice any signs that he was deteriorating? I mean, maybe they didn't notice signs that he was having these thoughts, but did they notice that he was becoming more isolative or maybe more depressed or maybe more irritable? Because those are the kinds of accompanying signs that usually go hand in hand when somebody starts developing these types of belief systems. And it's just so sad to hear that there's a possibility that really no one knew, but I do wonder if people are, thinking in retrospect, they've noticed some signs that he wasn't well, at least, you know, that maybe he needed some help. And I just think that the way that our culture is, Anna, in America is, you know, we, we expect that people are going to take care of themselves, you know, and we also don't want to pry too much. You know, we, we don't want to get in somebody's way or, you know, kind of accuse them of something or, or, or be a busybody. But Interestingly, in cultures where there's collective living, people kind of lived like in generational homes where all three generations are pretty much living always in the same community. We do find that individuals with psychotic illnesses actually have better recovery rates. And, and it's not because the medicine um, is better necessarily or the mental health system is better necessarily in some of these other areas. It's more that there's more eyes on the person and somebody's going to catch that that person isn't well and they're going to get them help. The other thing that the FBI released is that they asked him, they asked Matthew Coleman, do you realize what you've done? Do, do you know that what you've done is wrong? And Coleman, Matthew Coleman reportedly responded, quote, that he knew that it was wrong, but this is the quote, but it was the only course of action that would, that would save the world. Mm-hmm. So he admits to the authorities, according to the authorities, yes, of course. Yeah. But I had to. What choice right. did I have? So I, I, you know, I realize your expertise, I mean, which is perfect for today's case, is about his mental state. 
But one of the things we talk about a lot on this program, especially with attorneys, is so often, I mean, I can't tell you how many times the accused will say, oh, let's try the, you know, reason of it, you know, it can't not fit to stand trial by reason of insanity. How many times have we seen that card played in court to avoid prosecution, to avoid standing trial when we know damn well that there's nothing wrong with these people? Now, in this case, Judy, do you think that that actually might hold up in a court? It's such a good question. And as you said, this insanity plea has been abused so much. And I think that that's why, you know, people are very, very reticent now to accept that um, unless they really do all of their due diligence and really find out that clearly this person was at the time of the crime temporarily insane due to, for example, a mental health condition. And I think it's going to cause you know, the individuals who are representing this man to really make sure that they go through all of the different types of systems that can actually prove if it's true that he truly did not know what he was doing. And, you know, usually that involves Anna, a comprehensive evaluation by a forensic psychologist who is going to opine about the mental state of this individual and trying to essentially backdate the assessment of their mental state to the time of the crime, which of course is so hard to do because the only information you'll have likely is the report of this person, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily super reliable. And then the other piece of it is, I think there's all of these nuances about utilizing the insanity defense. For example, he actually admitted to the police, I knew what I did was wrong. And I think once you say that, that weakens this idea of the insanity defense, right? Because I think part of the insanity defense is not only that you were not in your right mind, but actually that you didn't know right from wrong when you were not in your right mind, right? So I think this is going to be hard to prove for him because he actually said, I knew what I did was wrong, right? So then I think the prosecution is going to say, well, if you knew what you did was wrong, then couldn't you have gone some other way? Couldn't you have reported this to the police if you thought that some, somehow your children were evil? The police could have helped you, you know, to like figure that out, right? Instead of you just doing vigilante justice and taking it into your own hands and killing your children. So I think this is going to be a tough one, even though I think it's clear that he was probably mentally ill. And I think that the police are being very clever here in trying to get these statements from him saying, oh, I knew it was wrong because they're already anticipating this guy's going to try and get off and we're not going to let him because we've seen these babies and, and what he is charged with doing. Because there is another conversation when he finally arrives at the jail. So he's ultimately moved to the Santa Ana jail where he's currently being held. But as he's being booked, the the jailer, this is all in court records, um, says to Matthew, what happened to your hand? Because his hand was all bandaged. And he allegedly said, again, building the case that he knew right from wrong, he said, oh, this happened while I was hurting my children. Mm-hmm. Once again, further evidence from for the prosecution's point of view that they're going to say this is his excuse he knew exactly what he was doing he may have claimed that they had their you know serpent dna in them but he still knew that killing them was wrong exactly so um the criminal complaint has been filed and he has been charged with foreign murder 
of U.S. nationals. So I guess because it happened in Mexico rather than having him tried there, he will be tried here for his crimes. He's scheduled to be arraigned on August 31st. He's being held without bond. He has not entered a plea yet, and we understand um, that he is being given a public defender. Just a Mm. horrific crime. My goodness, yeah. And uh, I hope we get more information. I think that when these cases happen, people, you know, they want an explanation. They just want more information. I mean, it's not like maybe it could have been prevented. Maybe it could have, but people just want that knowledge base. So I do hope that more information emerges and I can certainly see the public's outrage of wanting justice for these children at all costs. And if this is a jury trial, I don't think it's going to go very well for this man. No, no. Our next case is out of Atlanta, Georgia. On Thursday, August 5th, officials in Atlanta held a news conference and they advised the public not to go into Piedmont Park alone at night. They did this because a week earlier, a woman and her dog were found stabbed to death in the park. 40-year-old Catherine Janess and her dog Bowie, a three-year-old pit bull, went for a walk in the park Tuesday night. This would be July 27th. They left the house at about 10.30 at night. This is something that she used to do a lot. And I think, you know, while I, you know, I, we, if we have dogs, we, we all have to take our dogs out. I'm not a big fan of late night walks alone in parks. I don't care how big your dog is. As a crime reporter, I've seen it all, right? Avoid any possibility of anything potentially dangerous. But nonetheless, she had a big dog with her. And now she lived in Midtown Atlanta, about a mile away from Piedmont Park. This is a large city park, and it has a very popular off-leash area, so I'm not sure if that's where she was headed. Catherine and Bowie are seen on surveillance camera shortly after midnight. So it looks like it was a pretty long walk that she had gone for that night. Catherine and Bowie were found in the park by Catherine's wife and life partner of six years, Emma Clark. WSB-TV reports that Catherine and Emma had dinner earlier that night and that Catherine said that she was going to take the dog for a walk. So here's the thing. When Catherine didn't come home, Emma got really nervous, started pinging her phone and went to the location of where the phone was pinging. So Emma says when she entered the park, she first sees Bowie and Bowie is about 50 feet inside the park's entrance She thought he had been hit by a car. Mm. That was her initial reaction. It's like, oh my God, what's happened? And then about 100 feet away is where she saw Catherine's body. And that's when she called 911. So Judy, according to Fox 5 Atlanta, investigators believe the dog fought with the killer in an effort to protect Catherine. And that's why the dog was also stabbed. They were both stabbed to death. And here is what is really interesting. So police don't usually do this, but they have ordered a forensic examination of the dog and an autopsy because they are looking for DNA evidence Mm -hmm. on the dog. There's several things that they're doing. You know how when you fight off an attacker, the police are always in the forensic Um, experts, the scientists are always trying to collect DNA from under your fingernails. They're doing the same thing with the dog's nails and his paws. Wow. Is that incredible? I've not seen a case like this. So they're testing the dog's paws 
the nails. Also, they've taken impressions of his bite because they believe if Bowie bit the attacker and they can narrow down the person and there are any obvious healing bite marks, that that will also be evident. I mean, it's just forensically from that approach. It's very interesting how the authorities are tackling this case. And I really hope that that yields them some helpful information because if the theory is correct, that the dog was trying to protect Catherine, which, you know, if you have a dog, you know that dogs are extremely protective of their family, of their owners. And uh, that would just be such an amazing thing if they could catch the perpetrator doing this, as you mentioned, this very non-traditional way of forensic analysis. But gosh, I just, you know, I, I think that that just tells you, again, just the loyalty, the dedication of a dog. Like it, it makes so much sense that he would essentially spring into protector mode. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, sadly, it's been almost a month now and we, you know, we still don't have a suspect in custody. Mm. What they um, have done is, so there were surveillance cameras outside of the park and then there were cameras inside the park and apparently the cameras inside the park were not synced with the city cameras. So there's been a lot of controversy in Atlanta about why these cameras weren't working and this really could have helped. So now the city of Atlanta is working quickly to try and sync up their cameras. In the meantime, though, Uh, The cameras that were working on the entrance to the park, you see people going in and out of the park, some in groups, some alone. The police have asked any of these people, or if you recognize these people, to please come forward, not because they believe these people are suspects, but they believe that these people may have some information. Did they see something? Did they hear something? Which may not sync up with what happened, but they don't know that they may know something. So... That's what's going on in Atlanta. And then in the meantime, Emma has told the authorities and also uh, local television reporters that Catherine was pretty cognizant to take different routes on her walks, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a lot of people are very good that way. You're, you know, when you think about it, don't always drive home the same way every day. Don't drive to work the same way in case someone is following you. These are all little things that one does to try and remain as safe as possible. It could also be you get tired of the same route, right? You're walking the dog. You want to see something new. So... Um, she didn't think that Catherine had a planned direction that night. She didn't think that Catherine was specifically targeted because didn't think she's the kind of woman to get into an argument with anyone. So didn't think anybody was out to get her. Um, and Emma Clark told, uh, WSB TV that she, that Catherine always felt very safe, very safe in that park, very safe in the neighborhood, but The authorities there have told, this is the sheriff and the district attorney and even the mayor, they've all said, please do not go into the park alone. So when these things happen, Judy, obviously it is very traumatic to the immediate family without question, but there's also a sense of fear to those in the general area because if this was a random attack and she didn't know who it was, then it increases everyone else's level of fear that they could be next. Right. And what you had just pointed out, Anna, the fact that maybe she wasn't targeted specifically, this wasn't somebody who had known the individual necessarily, but just 
possibly just a perpetrator looking to essentially attack whatever victim was around that night. Uh, that, of course, raises a lot of fear for the entire community because anybody could be next. And even the police were saying this park has been such a treasure for our community and there hasn't been a murder here for so long. This is not an issue that we generally have to deal with. But now you got to watch your back. Please do not go into the park by yourself alone at night. You know, all of these things. And I think it's good practical advice anyway. But you can understand sometimes in small communities, you just don't think these things are going to happen. You've done this for years. You know, it's part of your routine. You go on a walk maybe after dinner and you just don't think it's going to happen to you because you're in this small community where you think you know everybody. Mm -hmm. And based on the surveillance videos of the entrance to the park, there were plenty of people going in and out. So it's not like she was doing something that her neighbors were not doing either whether it's a late night jog or whatever, clearly it's a busy enough area. What I do find very puzzling here is, you know, crime is always, it's, it's a crime of opportunity. So why would you attack the person with the big pit bull? It just doesn't make sense to me. You know, that is not your easiest target. I was thinking that too. I was thinking this person is really bold to attack the person with the dog and a pit bull, no less, right? This is not a chihuahua. This is a dog that could really, they could kill people if they were in that type of mode. And so it is interesting how brazen this particular criminal was that essentially he knew he was going to be able to accomplish whatever it was he was trying to do that night. Um, usually you would think again, and I think that that does give you a sense of protection that maybe it's almost a false sense of protection because, you know, you think your dog is just going to protect you no matter what. And I think, unfortunately, this shows you, you know what, it's, you still got to be careful. Even if you have a huge dog, it doesn't matter. You know, it can still happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So both the DA and Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms have denied reports because there are rumors now that there could be a possible serial killer involved. They are very upset because they feel that this is not based in anything. And frankly, I don't know what it's based in, but they felt the need to tell the public not to worry about this. So nonetheless, we are passing that part along. And as I said, that there were nine surveillance cameras in Piedmont Park. That park is 187 acres. This is a big city park. And those cameras were installed in 2008. And as we've said, they've never been integrated. So what a time for them not to be useful when there's been a crime like this. So Crime Stoppers of Greater Atlanta has offered a $10,000 reward and people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA. They've also offered an additional $10,000 in reward money. And they're doing it because a dog has been attacked. And obviously they care about human life as well, but they're making a very strong statement here that you have a human being and an animal who have been attacked and murdered in a vicious manner, and they want justice for all the victims here. So, um, you know, that's the thing. This, This hurts people on so many different levels. You can just, it's just such a vicious, vicious crime. So the cameras are being updated. We don't, obviously, not any helpful here um, for this situation. Here's one other thing I find very interesting, and I don't know what to make of it, but I just want to share this. A person of interest in a separate case, separate case, was charged on Sunday with the murder and kidnapping of a female bartender. Now, the only reason that's of any interest that I want to mention that is because Catherine was also a bartender. 
But police have made it clear that the two cases are not related. So Hmm. I find that very interesting. I am very concerned, though, that it's been this long. And so far, police have not presented any potential suspects. Yes, I'm concerned as well, because if they're actually doing this forensic investigation, and I guess sometimes it takes time to analyze the data, but if there is any forensic evidence at all, it shouldn't take that long before you get some kind of an update. And so I don't know if there's other holdups, maybe there's other cases that are pending, I I don't know. But clearly we know that the longer a case goes unsolved, the less chance that we will be able to solve it. So I really hope that they hustle and and get that information out as quickly as possible. And I really hope they find this perpetrator and prosecute him. Me too. It is time for our comments section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. And that means it is time for our very own Owen Michael, who's back from a little vacation. We missed you last week, Owen. Hi, Anna. Hi, Dr. Judy. Nice to see you and nice to hear from you. Yes, it is good to be back. Uh, It was time for a little little mini vacation there to uh, reset and we're back. And avoid all crime, right? (laughs) There is hopefully to get away from that a little bit. We have an update to a story we reported back in July. An Iowa man who was arrested after allegedly calling in a bomb threat to a McDonald's restaurant because there was no McNugget sauce included in his order. He had been charged with a hate crime in July. Uh, His charges have now been reduced to second degree harassment, a misdemeanor. People had a lot more to say about the drive through condiments, though, than the charges themselves. Mark T said, you always check the bag before you drive off, Nimrod. If for no other reason than they never give you enough sauce, it's your own damn fault. So blaming the uh, blaming the guy there. Uh, Cheryl P says, what are you in for? Ah, I threatened to bomb McDonald's because they didn't give me dipping sauce for my nuggets. Hardcore, dude. <laughs> Judgmental. <laughs> you know, I that sauce, though, it, it, it really makes those... Uh, those McNuggets much better. So you should definitely check before you drive off. I always make sure they give me extra. So, you know. There is a legitimate point there. That's true. Because uh, McNuggets without the sauce is a, is a sad meal. And in my own opinion there, but uh, you know, there is uh, you definitely don't want to take it too far there. Uh, Steffi, Steffi L says I worked at Mickey D's in high school and they say to give the money to anyone robbing us without resistance. So this means they protect their sweet and sour more than they do their cash. (laughs) Strong opinions on uh, McDonald's uh, takeout and drive through there. So, uh, oh, my goodness. One of the things I find so fascinating about this case, Owen, is that, you know, so he called the bomb threat in because he got home and that's when he realized that he didn't have the sauce. So when the cops, you know, get to the restaurant, figure out what's going on, threats are being made. They just call back the number that he called on. The idiot answers. And when the cops ask him, did you just call here and threaten them? And it's like, well, yeah, I didn't get my sauce. (laughs) All allegedly, of course. But uh, yes, this is um, uh, kind of a world, you know, one of those uh, dumb criminals type situations. Who knows whether there was, you know, alcohol involved or a late night issue or anything like that. But uh, please be kind to each other and don't uh, call in bomb threats no matter uh, what the circumstances Shouldn't right. need to be said, but it is. Yes. And just check the bag to make sure you have the sauce that you want. Easily resolvable. Yes. These are life lessons, Owen. <laughs> Indeed. Taking notes. 
<laughs> Thanks, Owen. See you next week. Bye, guys. See you next week. And thank you so much for having me. It's always great to work with you. And um, it's these cases are really difficult. And I know that sometimes it's horrific to actually delve into the mental uh, aspect of it all a little bit, but hopefully at least it provides some answers. It helps people understand these things a little bit more. And, you know, unaddressed mental illness is such a problem in our society still. So if you notice any odd behaviors in your loved ones, people that you know, it's always better to say something um, and and see if they need a little more support rather than just thinking, well, they're probably fine and they'll ask me if anything is wrong or they need me. You know, I, I think in this time, especially, we should just reach out more to people, especially as people are becoming more isolative. We just need to stay connected with the people we care about. And that is very, very good advice. Dr. Judy, where can people find you? Because uh, I follow you on Instagram on, and on your account, you're, you're always updating and giving people suggestions either on how they can better cope or calm down or reach out. So where can people get these weekly wonderful nuggets of, of resources from you? Oh, thank you. I, I love being Instagram friends with you and I love your post too. So you guys can find me on Instagram at Dr. Judy Ho. That's D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. Or you can get more information about me on my website, drjudyho.com. And you can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. And mostly I just post about, you know, my chihuahua or what I ate that day. <laughs> Nothing too interesting. Not nearly as helpful as Judy's. <laughs> Her posts are so fun, though. I don't know if I told you, Anna, but I used to have a chihuahua, too. So, Oh, really? Oh, so my gosh. The pictures of yours reminds me of mine. So, <laughs> Oh, I know. And it, when you were talking about how, you know, this and one of our cases, how there was a pit bull involved, you know, for those of you who have chihuahuas, you know that they are very territorial and they yes. think that they are 30 pounds and they will... They are so loud. They are so loud and in your face. It's really funny. You're like, do you know how small you are? But no, they get up in the face of the big dogs. Oh, they do. They do. And my Jackie O is fearless, even though she barely has any teeth. I'm like, like, what are you going to do when you do tangle with that dog? Okay, Jackie, what are you going to (laughs) do? They're very brave animals, I'll tell you that. (laughs) They really are, and we love them all. We love our furry friends. So you can always find our content wherever you get your podcasts, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Of course, you can watch on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, and you can get updates to our newsletter by subscribing at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and as we always say, don't do crime. (laughs) 